Hey, fellas, you know I only got so many speeches in a given workup or deployment, but uh, it's like Chief and I said right at the beginning of this platoon. Once we step off on campaign, once this bird's ready and we're downrange, everything back home needs to be in balance. I mean, we're not going to be worth a damn to each other or ourselves if we get over there and something's out of whack. I mean, if things aren't right with the family, things aren't right with the finances, or something's off, it's going to put us all out of balance. So we need to have that tight before we launch. If somebody's got an issue, bring it up. Chief can take care of it. I can take care of it. Everybody's got each other's back. Let's make sure we lock that down so when we're ready to roll, all our focus is on the mission. For all those who've been downrange, to us and those like us, damn few. Cheers. Cheers. Hi, everybody. This is Ed Hoffman, and welcome to the main event. Open up with that scene from Act of Valor. Act of Valor, the movie that actually has actors that are uh, former Navy SEALs about uh, about building teams and doing uh, doing missions. And I think, uh, you know, hey, everything's got to be in balance. I, I like the way they're talking about having everything in balance and be ready for every mission. And if you weren't listening last week, you need to go back. Go on edhoffman.net or iTunes or SoundCloud and listen to the second half of last week's show where I started my interview with with uh, Byron Sullivan, call sign Shrek, Colonel Byron Sullivan, call sign Shrek, who uh, recently completed 27 years as a Marine Corps fighter pilot. Commanded the He's commanded at the highest levels of the Marine Corps. He has fought in combat in Iraq three times, twice in the air, once on the ground in as a forward air controller in Ramadi, Iraq. He holds a National Security Strategy Master's Degree from the National War College. What you'll recognize is this guy's a Top Gun instructor. He's got tons of insight. He's been very candid about uh, about our military, our leadership in the United States, and uh, and he's talking about the difference between leaders and politicians. In the first half, we talked about uh, 9/11 and going into Iraq and Afghanistan, and uh, and now we're and then into Ukraine. Now, as we uh, continue, Shrek gives his insights about the pullout in Afghanistan and then into the beginning of the Ukraine war. So, tell us about what uh, as you guys watched Afghanistan happen. I mean, you guys, I was you and I were texting back and forth as we're seeing things develop over the last year and a half, and and I'm saying, hey. How are you guys feeling about this stuff? And and I know that you're watching on TV. You see it differently than I do because you're because your position in the military and your experience that I don't have. Um, what are you guys thinking? Well, I can I can tell you. I had a every single one of my buddies uh, that I that were in the military that I talked to, which is a lot of folks were very, very upset. We, and, and it goes back to what I was talking about earlier, we gave a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, people, humans, money, everything, to go help try and nation build there. Mm -hmm. Whether that was the right thing or not, that was what we were there to do. And we gave it up because of politics. Because some person put a deadline on a calendar based on something that had happened on that date. And I'm talking about our current president, Biden. And that's why I'm 
happy to talk to you as I'm retired. But uh, he literally put his finger in the chest of our generals and said, we're leaving. And we gave up one of the most strategic bases in the world. We built Kandahar in in the 1960s. We built that base because it was a strategic place. Uh, It gets us close to a lot of different areas that we might need to get to. And we walked out of that place at night and left all of those people that we had been working with and trying to help, trying to help them save their own country, knowing full well that they were going to be decimated by the Taliban because because we had decided that the political ramifications of us maintaining folks in Afghanistan was not digestible by the American people. So we were going to just leave. It, it's the worst thing I've seen since you see the helicopters picking up people from the top of the fall of Saigon mm-hmm. when they're picking people exactly. up from that building. It was the worst thing ever. And it was very, very demoralizing for every man, woman that I know who fought in Afghanistan. And and primarily because of the, the same thing that I felt in Iraq, which are the promises that you made to the people that you were going to help them get through this. And all those people are dead. I guarantee you that the Taliban have gone in. They had a, They found out every single interpreter. You know, the fact that we weren't going to take the interpreters back. Are you kidding me? Like, those people put their lives on the line. They walked around with us in Iraq, full, you know, full battle rattle, making sure that – and what I mean by that is, you know, helmet and Kevlar uh-huh. uh, because people were shooting at them more than they were at us. They put they, their lives they on the line. they looked at it and say, these guys are traitors. traitors. They're, they're, uh, they're supporting the Americans. Yeah. And so, you know, that is uh, – and and who should be held responsible for that? The president of the United States. It was his call. He didn't listen to his security advisors. He didn't listen to them. And he may gave an order. I think a position – people ask me, hey, will you support this support this cause? No, I don't believe in it. And, you know, I've, and – you know, I've been I've been a big vo- I've been a big voice for 15 years on the radio, and they know that I'm a I'm a, a conservative voice out there. And a couple times they've asked me to 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 support a cause, and I just go, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that. And and this is one of the things I, I talk about with my son. I say, happy wife, happy life. But when when it comes a time when your you say, hey, your wife's gonna you just let her make a decision. But when she makes a decision, you know, is dumb. You say, wait, 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 honey. We're not going to do that, and let me tell you why. And you put your foot down. You're still the man of the house. And when the military commanders have the have the president say, "Hey, we're just pulling out. We're going to pull out at night." Why wouldn't Why wouldn't our military commanders say, "Say, Mr. President, this is the wrong thing to do. We need to get the other people out. You know, women and children first. You know, the the military needs to be the last people out. We can't just pull out." Yeah, exactly. And, and I know that those things were said by our military leaders, but unfortunately, uh, you know, we work for the commander in chief and whether he's got dementia, Alzheimer's or whatever he has, he's still the commander in chief until someone tells us that he's not. And we, we have to follow the orders that were given. In this case, if you don't agree with the orders, then you turn in your four stars and you say, I don't believe what you're doing is right. And I cannot support that. But you find yourself in a catch-22 in that case because you're leading these folks in combat as their general. And what you don't want to do is just let them, 
you know, suffer because you don't believe in the decision. You want to try and help them through the process, the problem. In this case, I personally think that our generals should not have done that. They should have turned in their stars. Yeah, you, uh, you mentioned uh, a conversation you had with uh, David Mattis. Yeah, so when I was at uh, National War College, we had uh, General Mattis came and spoke to us, and he spoke to the Marines individually, and we talked about uh, major leadership decisions. And uh, one of the decisions that we talked about, and when do you turn in your stars? When do you stop and say, I don't believe this, I'm not doing this, I'm out? Um, and so he was explaining to us different times and you know different experiences that he had had. And when he went into Fallujah the first time, he said, if I go into Fallujah, you better not pull me out because I'm not going back in. And he went into Fallujah, and they pulled him out, and then they made him go back in. And I asked him, I said, hey, why did you go back in? If you honestly believe that and you said that you weren't going to do it, why did you do it? And he said he didn't want to let his Marines down. He didn't want to let someone else lead that charge because he knew how to do it. You know, he was a very amazing tactician, obviously, and strategist when it comes uh -huh. to that kind of stuff. So, um, but at some point, especially with the with the way that Afghanistan went down, we knew, like, we saw this coming. We saw the entire thing coming. We let them know what our timeline was. The we should have kept Kandahar, and we should have used that base to exit from. It's, we had everything that we needed there for security, everything that we needed there to defend the base. We had fuel. We had everything else. The guys that I talked to, the, the amount of people that we put in harm's way, completely uncalculated risk. And one of the things that we do in the military, anytime we do any type of mission, for example, you know, we'll talk about Maverick, Top Gun Maverick later on. You know, uh -huh. We try and manage risk, manage risk to force to the people that we're fighting against, the civilians, whatever the risk might be, to make sure that we can get our people home. And the, <laughs> the zero forethought that was put into leaving Kandahar and then trying to evacuate everyone out from an airfield that wasn't protected, that didn't even have fuel for our jets. And so what ends up happening is you got these guys in these big transports, these C-17s that you saw people falling out of mm -hmm. with zero type of, uh, you know, uh, real interrogations or anything done but for those people who are getting on those airplanes. We just shoved them on the airplanes and took off. And we didn't have no the gas. No vetting or anything. No vetting or anything. We didn't have the gas to get those people where they needed to go. We had to go to an interim base. And they ended up at that interim base, and guys were holding overhead the airfield because there were no places to park the airplanes. They were getting gas. They had to land, vet the people, and then take back off. The amount of military personnel that we put in, in an uncalculated risk by not keeping Kandahar together, evacuating from Kandahar, waiting fighting, defending Kandahar as much as we needed to, once we got every last American out, then we pull out in the middle of the night like we did before. But what we don't do is give up that strategic base, go to a, a zero plan, and put all those Marines, soldiers, sailors, airmen on the ground in harm's way. And I don't mean to be flippant when I say this, and I, you know, I feel 
horrible for the families that lost their 13 uh, children uh, during that evacuation. But I got to tell you, we are amazingly lucky that we did not lose a lot more people. Exactly. Watching, watching from here, we're watching go. Why do you pull the military out first before you try to get the people out? Why not? That would just be that. Just you don't have to be a military strategist to to understand that. And I'm watching it going. What are these guys thinking? And I know, and I know that we've got a commander in chief who's who's you know a sprig of broccoli that he doesn't really know what he's doing. He's making calls based on based on his uh, his diverse cabinet, not competent cabinet, his diverse cabinet, and. You guys on the you guys in the military, you guys know how it's supposed to be done. Yeah, and then what happens after the 13, uh, 13 military folks get killed? We do some errant UA, UAS strike on a family that we had bad intel on and kill a bunch of civilians. You got to be kidding me. Like, it's just the amazing amount of ineptitude that are leading this country today is amazing. We don't have leaders today in our in our country. We have politicians. We need leaders. We need people who are going to do the right thing for the right reason, regardless of what's going on in the media. And the media gave them a lot of guff because, hey, these people died. We're going to go get them. We're going to go get them. And we do a hastily put together attack. And, and unfortunately, we have a, a large amount of collateral damage in that attack and kill a family and a bunch of children. Yeah, well, it's only it's only four or five or six or seven people. But yeah, if that was your family, that's huge. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. So we tell them that we're here to protect you and and help you advance your culture and give you freedom. But now you're the brother of of the 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 female or whoever their sister who got killed in an errant attack from this country. What do you want to do? You want to kill Americans. Exactly. So, you know, one of the roles I had when I was at uh, at our weapons school at uh, Mots 1 uh, in Yuma was a collateral damage expert for the Marine Corps. I used to run a CDE class, a collateral damage um, estimate class. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the interesting thing about that was that when we look at collateral damage, it's all based – it's primarily based on rules of engagement, law of war – but it's also based on policy. Mm-hmm. And what sets the policy? The ability for for our people at home to digest large numbers of civilians getting killed. I can, I, I'll never forget it. When I went into Iraq the first time dropping bombs in my F-18, they said, you can't kill more than 29 civilians. And I was like, you got to be insane. Like, I don't want to kill civilians. Like, I don't want to kill any civilians. We're going to, you know, we're not trying to hit civilian targets. Right. We're trying to hit military targets. Mm-hmm. But at that time, the CD level five, which means it takes presidential approval to conduct that attack, was 29. The number was 29. The next time I went in and on the ground in 05, it went from 10 people to one, meaning if you think you're going to have one CIVCAS, civilian casualty, uh-huh. then you need to get p- approval from someone who's been given uh, collateral damage estimate level five, which would normally be the president of the United States unless he pushes that down to someone else. Uh-huh. And then there were all sorts of other different parts to so that. So in other words, you see a you see a high a high value uh, enemy, high high value terrorist. You can't shoot him if he happens to be next to someone you don't want to kill. That's right. Now 
It depends, right? So there were there were different rules that that governed all of the ROE, and some of those at the time were, um, you know, hey, if you're in self defense and you can't egress from the situation, and you're and it's then you use proportionality to get what you need done mm-hmm. in in for the military interest at that point. Um, now, for some of the high value targets, they might have what they called human shields with them a lot of the times. Right. So uh, so sometimes you have to determine whether that's a human shield or whether it's an actual civilian. But those are all very difficult things to do, and it takes tons of intelligence. It takes lots of work to get there to get that done. And you need the, you need the guys on the ground that have the intelligence to make decisions as opposed to to some guy who's eating an ice cream cone in uh, in Delaware. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Hey, man, I'm getting chocolate chip today. <laughs> what should we do? Should we kill these people? Well, let's see. They they killed 100 Americans. Yeah, but eh, it's Sunday. Give them the day off. Right. Yeah, it's pretty discouraging to see. I mean, because, you know, you see previous presidents, and, I and, and of course, Trump, I thought, was the best president uh, as far as just making making decisions and and having uh, having some real world experience about cause and effect, you never thought he's on vacation. No, whatever happens, whatever happens, he steps up to the mic, makes a decision. People ask him questions, he gives them answers. And right or wrong, this is how I see it. Whereas Biden doesn't have any kind of idea. He has to wait till someone tells him what he thinks before he before he makes decisions and. You see it. You see what the result is around the world, and we see people dying because of that. So let's talk about Ukraine. Um, I thought we saw it all coming. Hey, you know the Russian the Russian military is lining up on the Ukraine border, and that would have been that would have been the time if I was president. And I'll never be president, but uh, <laughs> if I was, and I'm sure if, if Trump was there, hey, we see what you're doing. Here's the sanctions. You you back the hell off. What were you guys thinking? Uh, pretty much the same thing. I, I personally, I, I uh, you know, looking at Putin, it seemed more like a gesture. You know, hey, if you do, if you don't, if you don't give us what we need, if you don't start playing right, Ukraine, we're going to go do this. And uh, it's interesting when you study Russia or that whole area, right? Uh, they've been invaded more than anybody, right? So. The Ukraine, it's called the Ukraine because mm-hmm. it's actually Ukraine means the forward edge, the front line, the, you know, the outskirts, right? Uh-huh. And they want in to, in order to keep Moscow safe, they want to make sure that the borderlands are secure. Uh-huh. And so when they see NATO and the EU and everybody else rolling up right next door, uh, being bombastic with Russia about how we're going to, you know, make Ukraine part of the EU or NATO or whatever, you have to understand that you're putting... You're pushing the dog into the corner, and you're not giving him a way out. I'm not saying what he did was right in any way, shape, or form. In fact, I would argue that uh, my concern is, are we dealing with a rational actor? And, um, and what I mean by that is, are we dealing with someone who is looking, f- looking for an objective in order to keep himself in power and the country in power? People think North Korea... Uh, Kim out there is is not a rational actor. He's completely rational. He wants to stay in power. He does things to get things, and and we give him things and keep him appeased. But when you look at what went on with Ukraine, um, I completely agree with you. The instrument of power that we should have used immediately was economic sanctions before any of this stuff started. Mm-hmm. 
open up dialogue and diplomacy with Russia to figure out what is it that you want? Like, what ex- what exactly do you want? And what he wants, the problem was, is that what he wanted and what he still wants, in my opinion, is he wants the Ukraine to to work more with Russia than they are with the EU. Um, when you study demographics and you look at the people who live in Ukraine, the folks who are on the east side near Russia, they, they don't mind being Russian. You know, the people who live on the west side want to be European or they want to be part of the European Union. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you keep that together? Uh, I think diplomacy, information and economic uh, instruments of power are what we should have used. I don't think that we should have used military power directly against Russia um, in this case. And I think you know, at the time, don't get me wrong, I was still flying F-35s. And there's nothing more than I would have loved to do to go whoop their butts because I know we could have done it. I mean, it would have been a turkey shoot. Yeah. So uh, you, we were texting back and forth, and you, what if you were commanding, considering our best interests, and and assuming that it would have even got to war? Because I think uh, uh, I think you you agree that using uh, some economic sanctions before they went in and tell them to back off that. That's what we should have done. But let's assume, hey, that didn't happen. Now they say, now they say, uh, Shrek, um, how should we handle this? Well, I mean, this is, and this is exactly, you know, and people give the F-35 a bad rap because they think it's so expensive. In actuality, the price is coming way down on it. Um, that airplane is specifically designed for this type of combat. I mean, it would have been, it would, it wouldn't have been a turkey shoot. I shouldn't have said turkey shoot. But uh, we, we would have lost some aircraft. But I will tell you this. That aircraft is specifically designed to fight that fight right there. Um, I think that, we'll, you know, we would, have, we would have put our F-35s up airborne. Um, and one of, the, one of the roles of the F-35 is suppression of, any, suppression of enemy air defense, SEAD, SEED. The other thing is DEED, destruction of enemy air defenses. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that would have happened was we would have got our F-35s airborne, we would have got targetable locations on their SAM systems, and we would have taken out their SAM systems. If they had the audacity to send up any of their fighters, even their latest stealth fighter, I think we would have taken them out. Uh, especially now, hindsight, looking 2020, at the, the stuff that I've seen from the wreckage and the different things, the way that those aircraft are made, um, I'm very confident we would have been able to take out their airborne assets as well. The interesting thing today is to see how sloppily they have organized their airspace. They don't have an integrated air defense system uh, in the sense that uh, – well, we, uh, we... They don't? You mean the Russians? The Russians. Okay. So when I look at the Russians, they have an integrated air defense system. It's primarily surface-to-air missiles. The problem is, is that they don't integrate very well with their other aviation assets. So what you end up seeing are these very uh, stealth aircraft that they have. Their, their latest, their most capable aircraft are having to fly low altitude to stay out, to not get shot down by their own missiles, mm-hmm. you know, and what that's doing is putting them in a what, what I it's called a man pad, a man portable air defense system. 
And that is a surface-to-air missile that can be shoulder-mounted. You see them, you know, when you watch the movies, you see the guy reach up or gal and shoot the missile off their shoulder, and it goes Uh chase the airplane around, right? Most of those are heat-seeking missiles uh, that they fire. And so the Russians are getting their, you know, their top-line fighters shot down by man pads. I just think it's hilarious, kind of. The way that we would have fought this is standoff precision weapons, uh, until we can beat them down and beat down their IADs. Um, anything that they launched airborne would have been taken out as well um, with our air-to-air missiles and stuff like that. Uh, and then behind us or in front of us, we would have had fourth-gen fighters, F-18s, uh, you know, non-stealth aircraft to kind of be our missile trucks downrange. Uh-huh. And we would have, uh, I-, I have no doubt in my mind that we would have decimated them. Okay, that's uh, all the time we have for the first half of the main event. So stay tuned to 5 Minutes of Traffic, Weather, Sports, and Commercials. And we'll be right back with more of uh, Byron Sullivan's interview. Hi, this is Ed Hoffman with United American Mortgage. New company, same Ed Hoffman. If you've heard my show, The Main Event, then you know that I think like you do. And that's what you want when you're looking for someone to advise you on real estate financing. Whether you're thinking of financing a piece of property you'd like to own or refinancing a piece of property you already own, or if you or your spouse are over 62 and you'd like to find out more about that reverse mortgage thing that everyone is talking about, and whether that property is in California or another state where you'd like to go to escape California, I can help you find the solution that's right for you and in step with your short-term and long-term plans. Call me toll-free at 855-640-2020. That's 855-640-2020. One last time, day or night, toll-free area code 855-640-2020. Or go to edhoffman.net and click on the United American Mortgage logo. Ed Hoffman, NMLS ID number 9921. United American Mortgage Corporation, NMLS ID number 1942. United American Mortgage Corporation is an equal housing lender and licensed by the California Department of Real Estate. Welcome back to part two of the main event. My name is Ed Hoffman with United American Mortgage. I don't often talk about uh, real estate and finance on the radio, but if you're uh, if you're toying with the idea of buying a piece of property that you don't own yet or refinancing a piece of property that you do own and you'd like to refinance it, or if you want to find out about one of them reverse mortgage things everybody's talking about, uh, I'm I'm finding out I'm finding out that we're having some problems with our toll-free numbers. Just send me an email to Ed Hoffman at uamco.com that's ed hoffman at uamco.com or go on to edhoffman.net click on the united american mortgage logo and then i'll get back in touch with you and we'll help you find the missing pieces to your real estate financing puzzle and get you all dialed in so if you uh if you weren't with us in the first half we're talking to byron shrek sullivan about his uh about his you know what i'll tell you i met byron Shrek Sullivan in uh, about a year and a half ago, and I've been asking him about coming on the radio and doing this interview, and he said, I'm retiring next year. As soon as I'm retired, you got it. And he retired on on October 1st, and he's being very candid for a military professional uh, about what we see on TV and how we interpret things versus how how the, the military guys uh, interpret things. So uh, we were talking in the first half, we were talking about Ukraine and how we would have decimated Russia had the Biden administration listened to the wisdom of our military leaders. And we continue talking about the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine war. 
when they were all stuck in the mud in that quagmire, when they tried to come in from the north side, you remember that when they mm-hmm. first went in? Yep. Apparently, they bought their their tires from China, and all the tires went bad when they got in the mud. They started to deflate and stuff like that. Oh, I just yeah. thought that that was hilarious. Holy cow. That would have been a turkey shoot. That would have been fourth gen stuff after we took out their IADs going in there to take all those aircraft out. All those. So they're all, they're all stuck. We just send one plane over there. I mean, a B 52, you know, you get in some of our big bombers that go in there and just lay waste. What we've done now is we've given the, the Ukrainian army the latest weaponry that, they, that, that is on the shelf from every country around the world. And do they know how to fly them? Uh, well, so what they're they're not using uh, they're not using F thirty fives. When you look at what the Russians did, they did a pretty good job of taking out the airfields first, mm-hmm. so that the Ukrainian MiGs couldn't get airborne to go fight against them. The beautiful thing about the F thirty five B is that I don't need a big airfield to take off from. I can take off, you know, and land in about fifteen hundred feet or so. So you, unless they blew up every single fifteen hundred foot area on our, on every single road, we wouldn't be able to fly F thirty fives. Otherwise. The F-35B, which is the the Marine Corps variant, the one that uh-huh. hovers, uh, would have been a perfect uh, aircraft to to be able to get in there and do the mission. The A and the C would have been very capable as well, but they would have had to launch from further away. Okay, but of course you still have to. Whenever you land, you have to fuel up. That's right. You got to get gas. So you got to have you got to have places to to get gas. That's right. The logistics train that goes with that uh, is is fairly heavy. I mean, you know, we're talking about thirteen thousand pounds of gas per aircraft so you think the russian army they just don't have logistics they just don't understand the art of war uh i think that you know what i mean when you look back to us when we invaded iraq we went so fast that we outpaced our logistics chain as well mm-hmm. um i think that the russians thought that they would be in kiev very you know within a day or two Mm-hmm. So the logistics train that they had in place was definitely not enough and definitely ran out. Then they got themselves in a quagmire where they couldn't get the logistics in. And, yeah, so their logistics plan was bad. Poor planning. Mm-hmm. Poor planning. And then they're fighting against people who know what they're fighting for. They're fighting for their lives and they're fighting for their country. And they have, and the Russian fighters don't really know why they're there. That's right. They interviewed that one guy. He thought he was on an exercise or something like that. Right? Uh-huh. And I mean, and like you said earlier, hey, they, they're telling us that there's Nazis over there. We're going to fight them. And they get over there and realizing that they're not they're not fighting Nazis. They're they're fighting people that just want to protect their home. That's right. And so when you look at that, when you look at the invader who doesn't know why they're there, compared to the person who knows why they're there, defending their family, mm-hmm. uh, then who's going to fight harder? And you know, you're always going to fight for the person to your left and right when you're in combat. But when you're fighting for your home and your family who are 100 meters behind you, you're going to fight like a rabid dog. You know, one thing I'd like to throw in with the Ukraine piece um, real quick uh, is, you know, who's watching this the most, the most closely is China, China, because China and Taiwan and we have. Right now in our military, China is what we call the pacing threat. We are going to defend Taiwan. We also told the Ukrainians we would defend them in 1991 when they gave up their nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. We've helped them out, but we haven't defended them in any way, shape, or form. Um, But, you know, we have an agreement with with, uh, Taiwan uh, that we will help defend them. We've given them tons of military uh, equipment, aircraft, everything that they need to defend themselves. But 
you know, quantity has a quality of its own. And, you know, the Chinese have 1.5 billion people in their country, and 1 billion of them, I think, are in the military and the, and the police force. It's almost impossible to win a fight if you're fighting from the water against your enemy who's fighting from the shore. It's hard to win that battle. Yeah, it's very difficult, especially today. You know, the, uh, the, when you look at, um, there's a great book, it's called The Kill Chain, and it talks about, you know, where we are with today's military and where China is. And um, they know, they know the second that a carrier leaves the port, you know, and they try and find them. I mean, back in the day when we were when, in World War II, you know, the hardest thing was finding the enemy ships, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're still pretty stealthy when we roll around in the ocean. But as soon as we decide we're going to go into combat, you have to get close enough to get your fighters and your bombers in there to get done what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. You have to set up that logistics chain. And that's the problem that we're dealing with in our military today is exactly how are we going to defend Taiwan when we have to fight from so far away? Um, so, you know, that becomes a very different thing. The Chinese are playing Go. They're playing three-dimensional chess, mm-hmm. and we're playing checkers. You know, you look at our policies, they change. Xi Jinping, when he wakes up in the morning, he doesn't care about what Biden thinks. He doesn't care about what we're doing. When he, when he wakes up in the morning, he was worried about the other 0.5 billion Chinese that don't work for him. And are they going to try and upset his presidency? Are they going to try and take over the government? He's worried about the people in his country. And so, you know, we find ourselves today in a, in a place where the global economy is rapidly, you know, falling apart. And, and that's great concern across the board. And if the Chinese people can't eat, are they going to revolt against China? Does China decide to go in against Taiwan because they think that that's the best way to, to create this 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 fervor, this uplift, this you know, get let's get into a war, and that way people won't think about what's going on at so home. So you bring you bring that up, and it makes me think about uh, what President Trump was doing. Let's bring all these jobs back. You know, why are the Chinese people smarter than us? Are they more capable than us? No, they're not. They just have less regulations, and it's cheaper for Apple to build iPhones in China. Huh. And it's cheaper for all these countries, cheaper to buy this stuff from China because they don't have as much regulation, but they're killing us economically because we're buying all that all that stuff from them. I think the American people would be be feel a lot safer and be very willing to pay an extra an extra ten dollars for an iPhone or an extra five cents for a shirt or something that you and I think that chokes out chokes them out economically and as long as we're winning economically, we're winning all around. I agree. I agree. And that's that's where it goes back into our national security interests. You know, is that part of our national security interests? And you bring up, I'll give you a quick example. Um, I got family up in New Hampshire, and, uh, and I'm rolling around with these loggers to see how they do their business up mm-hmm. in the woods in New Hampshire. And it is amazing to see the, the, the equipment that they're using to do the logging and everything else. And I'm asking him, I say, hey, what's, so what's going to happen to these logs? I see you, you know, got all these semi-trucks filled up with these logs. He goes, we're going to take them into Canada. I'm like, what do you mean? Meanwhile, there's people up and down the river in New Hampshire that are all out of business. There's paper mills out of business. There's furniture companies. Ethan Allen used to be there out of business. Mm-hmm. Nobody's working. Everybody's on food stamps. It's horrible, right? And we're going to take that wood that we just cut down from our own land we're going to drive it across the border. Create Canadian jobs. Negative. 
No. We're going to put it – but we have to take it to Canada to put it on a boat to send it to China so that they can turn those logs into whatever they're going to turn them into, put them back on a boat, ship them back to Canada, and come across our border, that border, for free because of the North American uh, – the Free Trade Agreement, uh-huh. NAFTA. And so how amazing is that? We're killing jobs in – in that area where those people used to work and make, you know, beautiful furniture, all the things that we need, and now we are outsourcing that to the Chinese. So because it's cheaper to ship it over there, let them let them do it and ship it back. They have slave labor. I mean, imagine that. Imagine how much money does it cost to infuel everything, to and opportunity costs alone. You bought the wood, now you got to hold on to it for how long? Mm-hmm. To ship it across the around the world to get it how much cheaper is that labor it's a lot cheaper and you know what when we look at ourselves and we look at you know uh the things that we believe are fair and righteous to you know how we want to treat our people they don't they're going to put you in a sweatshop and make you sweat and get get whatever done that you're going to get done but that's the difference between who we're dealing with and you're right we need to bring those jobs home when you look at what's going on right now, you know, just real quick on the economy or, you know, the global stage, where does the EU get their oil from? You were talking about some of the things that Trump from Russia. Said. Yeah. And he made a statement. Everybody uh, said that he was crazy. He said, you're getting your oil from your enemy. And everybody says, oh, it's that, that's not true. Blah, blah, blah. Everything's fine. Guess what? It could be a cold winter in Europe. If Russia decides to turn off that oil, that is amazing. Meanwhile, in our own country, once again, I'll use New England as an example. We are rationing the amount of home heating fuel that we are going to allow people to pay three times more for this winter because we're not drilling in our own flipping country. We have more oil in this country to survive this country, even this expansion for over 400 years. Yep. And oh, by the way. If we were shipping that oil to the EU, they wouldn't be as dependent on Russia. And uh, uh, it would make jobs in this country, and it would reduce the price of gas, and inflation would start to come down. But we have to do whatever the politicians think is right because of some 16-year-old who wants to have an EV vehicle. And don't get me started on the EV vehicles. I mean, I love the concept, but holy cow, how much does it cost to make one of those things? in earth materials and fuel oil and everything else to get those things where they're going to be. Exactly. And my, and my, and my thought was, you know, um, Tesla, Tesla started out pushing this thing in general motors, Ford, they're all doing it now. There would be a natural, a natural evolution to people say, Hey, this is cool for me. You know, I'm all, I'm I'm doing all this traveling in town. It's it's convenient for me to just plug my 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 vehicle in overnight at my house. It's it's cheaper. It's more convenient. And and there will be a certain amount of evolution into that. You can't force it. No, you can't force it. We don't have the the electric grid for it. That's right. It would slowly build up, and it would slowly build, in, and it would happen naturally. And they're trying to push it because they're trying to save the earth. Somebody, somebody put on there. Hey, in the in the 1600s, uh, uh, Plymouth Rock was at sea level. Today, it's still at sea level. So, what are they talking about? <laughs> well, the my the funniest thing I think about EV stuff is where does the energy come from? Oh, it comes from the outlet in the wall. Uh-huh. Oh, really? 
Where does that energy come from? Is it coming from a nuclear power plant that you detest because it's so clean and can work, make so much power? Or is it coming from the coal, you know, the, the, the coal mill that's, that's making electricity? As long, as long as you don't see the smoke here, it's clean. Yeah, right. Yeah, I was uh, stuck in traffic uh, driving my Corvette out, out to Glendale this morning and saying, hey, I'm behind some Tesla that has a license plate that says clean energy. And I go, you're such a Democrat. <laughs> I live near March Air Force Base, so so I have a ton of military military retired. We we support the military. We created a, a a charity a charity organization, and we raise money to to build a smart home with Gary Sinise Foundation. We donated track chairs with the Independence Fund. Uh, we raised money with the boot campaign. How I met Joey Jones. Um, we remodeled the VFW. Uh, hey, the VFW's air conditioning's out, and nobody's nobody wants to go in there. Hey, we sent over some contractors and said, hey, 24 hours. I had the money raised to put two air conditioners on there. I'm in support of all the all the military guys. I think that we don't appreciate them enough. They certainly don't get paid enough, and so we're all there. Um, I have some friends retired from uh, March Air Force Base, and and we're talking politics one night. And and I say, you know, how do you how do we be comfortable with this? You know, we're the strongest country, but we're watching we're watching we're watching things go on across the world. And and we watch we watch Biden bring in his his diverse cabinet. We want to make sure we have enough black people, enough females and enough trans transgenders and enough homosexuals in there. I say, you know what? I just assume him get the most competent cabinet and protect everybody. You know, it does, you know, regardless, it doesn't matter how many how many of of what you are, but let's bring in the most competent people to lead our country. And one of one of this couple said said to me she goes, "You know what? It doesn't matter what we think. Our military guys are trained to do what they're trained to do, so that's all going to be fine." And I brought that up and I want you to expand on how do you feel about that theory? You know, the military takes a lot of hits for you know issues that we have with whether it's sexual assault, equal opportunity, whatever it might be. Um, but I will tell you this: you know, if you look at the demographic that's in the military today, um, you know, eighteen to twenty-six year olds, right? Uh, you know, that's that's an age where you know uh, where people men's brains aren't fully formed until they're about twenty-five-ish, mm-hmm. their frontal lobe. Uh, women form a little bit earlier, but you're really dealing with. Uh, uh, very immature folks, and you're trying to make these people, you're trying to teach these people how to wage war on an enemy. Um, We take society, and I'm going to speak for the Marine Corps. We take society and we make Marines. A Marine should not be like society. That individual needs to know how to go kill things and break stuff. Okay, and, you know, how does that relate to society? We make professional warriors. We make people who are professionals in all aspects of life. And we train them the best we can on what equal opportunity is, what sexual harassment, sexual assault, why it's not okay, why we're all brothers and sisters in the same uniform fighting for the same thing for our beautiful, shining city on top of the hill. Right. Yep. And so at the lowest level. I will tell you that we get very, very smart individuals who join uh, our military today. Um, my concern with our military today is not 
is not the people who are in it at the lower levels. My concern are the politicians who are trying to make force things into the military that don't belong there. Every individual that joins the military needs to be deployable. You need to be able to go deploy and wage war against the enemy. Now, that could be behind a desk, uh, you know, working a computer in a cyber uh, room, or it could be on a ship somewhere else. doesn't necessarily mean like in the Marine Corps where you're going to carry an 80-pound rucksack for 25 miles and then go to combat. Mm-hmm. Um, but it means that you need to be able to be deployable. And a lot of people can't get in the military for different reasons, you know, health reasons and different things like that. But when we look at, um, you know, the transgender thing, if somebody joins the military as a male or a female, that's fine. Whatever happened before that, I don't care. But when you're in the military and you're a male or a female, that's what you are. To have our government and the military change you to something else after you've joined I don't think is right. And I don't think that's a good use of taxpayers' money. I don't think that's a good use of creating the most powerful military on the planet. That's not what we need to be focused on. What we need to be focused on is training for combat every single day. Um, And I think that that's what's happening at the lower levels. What concerns me the most are, are the people at the higher levels. If our society was half as good as our military is when it comes to equal opportunity, racism, uh, sexual assaults, harassment, everything else, our country would be a thousand times better than it is today. Because we hold people accountable. When people make bad decisions, they are held accountable. Unlike in our society today, at the highest levels, people are not held accountable for bad things that they do across that spectrum that I just mentioned. Yeah, exactly. Go ahead. Are we ready to fight? Um, uh, let me let me throw one other thing on there. So I was in the Marine Corps for 27 years. So for the first four years, we were not in combat, about four and a half-ish, right? We were working with Vietnam-era gear. We were working with old stuff, whatever. The As we got, you know, 2001, I was on Wake Island when 9-11 happened. I'll mm-hmm. never forget it. We were going Transpac uh, to Japan for UDP. And I thought to myself, holy cow, am I ready to go to war today? And I probably wasn't. But I felt like I was close to it. I was a brand new guy in the squadron. I'd been there for about seven or eight months. But when we did go to war, I mean, I can remember taking guys out on night missions, getting shot at by air to ground, uh, surface to air uh, missiles, surface to air uh, gunfire, uh, you know, what we call AAA, anti-aircraft fire. Mm -hmm. And coming back and saying, hey, man, you did a great job tonight. Awesome. You know, good hits on the target. We took out a convoy of 15 vehicles. It was a great success for us that night. Um, and, you know, we held the the uh, artillery pieces away from getting to the, to the Brits um, down south. But in the end, he was like, yeah, man, that was the first live bomb I've dropped. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me, man. Like, and we fixed that. We fixed that. I hadn't dropped a joint direct attack munition, which is a GPS-guided bomb. I've only dropped one laser-guided bomb, an actual laser-guided bomb, off of my F-18 before I went into combat. Mm-hmm. And I would carry two JDAM, two of these GPS-guided bombs, and two of these laser-guided bombs. And we had to. We weren't learning it for the first time. We'd studied it. We'd made sure we were ready. But bottom line is, is that you were you were not proficient in using those weapon systems. Today. I, Today, my concern as we roll out of this military or this war 
footing that we've been on for you know since 2001 for the last what's the public math on that almost 20 years now mm-hmm. um, that we are not going to continue to fund our military to be as ready as they need to be and so my concern is at the highest levels our politicians and our generals need to make sure that each and every one of those marines under uh, marines military personnel understand that their number one duty is to kill people and break stuff and they need to make sure that they're trained to go do that so that we can have the sharpest sword on the, on the planet. Okay, that's the end of this, uh, of this section of the, uh, of the interview with Shrek, Byron Sullivan, Colonel Byron Sullivan, call sign Shrek. I forgot to say at the beginning, if you, didn't, if you missed any part of this show, if you missed any part of this interview, you can get the, you can get the podcast on edhoffman.net. Click on the podcast page. You can, you can hear this show as well as last, show, last week's show, which started the beginning of the interview, and you can get several past shows. You can also get the, the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes where you can subscribe for free and have it uh, download to your device once a week. We uh, re-record Friday mornings, and we upload it Friday afternoons, and it'll download somewhere sometime shortly thereafter. So if you, if you haven't heard the whole interview, um, go back to last week, listen to the first part, and uh, you heard the second and third part today. Next week, we'll finish the interview. So for the rest of you, just enjoy the rest of the Thanksgiving weekend and be thankful for uh, all that we have to be thankful for. And uh, my name's Ed Hoffman. I'll be back again with you next week. Hi, this is Ed Hoffman with United American Mortgage. New company, same Ed Hoffman. If you've heard my show, The Main Event, then you know that I think like you do, and that's what you want when you're looking for someone to advise you on real estate financing. Whether you're thinking of financing a piece of property you'd like to own or refinancing a piece of property you already own, or if you or your spouse are over 62 and you'd like to find out more about that reverse mortgage thing that everyone is talking about, and whether that property is in California or another state where you'd like to go to escape California, I can help you find the solution that's right for you and in step with your short-term and long-term plans. Call me toll-free at 855-640-2020. That's 855-640-2020. One last time, day or night, toll-free area code 855-640-2020. Or go to edhoffman.net and click on the United American Mortgage logo. Ed Hoffman, NMLS ID number 9921. United American Mortgage Corporation, NMLS ID number 1942. United American Mortgage Corporation is an equal housing lender and licensed by the California Department of Real Estate.